0: What's up, everybody? This is Grant that Cause Artist. Welcome to episode two of the Investing Impact podcast. Today, we're going to speak with Jennifer Baldwin Price, the president and CEO of Calvert Impact Capital, on investing $2 billion into mission driven organizations across the U.S. and around the world. Over the course of their 25 year history, Calvert Impact Capital has raised more than $2 billion from over 18,000 investors. To more than 520 mission driven organizations in the United States and also around the world. It's really a fascinating conversation that touches on a ton of different things from CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions, and also some interesting topics around how some. Businesses in Europe that she sees are are taking a, a different approach to executive and CEO compensation, where the metrics are not just based on growth and profitability, but also humanity and environmental impact will affect their bonus structure. And that's really an interesting look into maybe the future of compensation for hopefully and eventually public companies where it's not just profit, profit, profit amongst, you know, the devastation of the environment or maybe even some effects on humanity that drives that that drives the, the compensation that a company you know, would give executives and CEOs and even its employees in general. I think it's an interesting idea. We also talk a little bit about how governments can start to give tax incentives or tax breaks to companies that show and really prove out their sustainability metrics in a real way and show real proof of of progression in, in both the humanitarian front and the environmental front, I think is another interesting way that we can see some positive ways where money and business and capitalism can have start to have a real impact on, on those two crucial elements you know in our in our world. I really enjoyed chatting with Jennifer. I mean, she has such a, such a robust career in many different aspects of finance and investing. So it's very educational for me. I, I hope you get a ton out of it. I hope you get as much as I did out of it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Rate review when you get a chance, if you can. Stay healthy, stay safe. If you want to reach out to me, it's just grant at causeartist.com. Thanks, bye. So how, how we usually like to start these conversations is, is about an individual's journey. And how they get to where they are in, in their life and in their career and and sort of their their life's uh, arc, so to speak. So we can go we can start as far back as you want, but I guess, I guess tell us take us through a little bit of the journey of starting Calvert and what what that journey has been like and and how I guess how how long did did it take for you to become interested in in social impact investing and really your first your first discovery of it and what it sort of sparked within you
1: yeah you bet for me um coming to where i am now was really a journey of putting pieces together and it started right after college probably even earlier but let's just start at college okay (laughs) and uh after i graduated i went to africa as part of the peace corps i was a math teacher okay and part of that was i just never left the united states and i was curious but another big part was i like to teach Mm. and that to me felt like something that
0: not really knowing
1: where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. I'm going to do something I like. What I learned though, was um, something quite simple. I didn't recognize it when I first came back, but you know, years later, the penny dropped as they say, and that's really the power of the community over the individual. Mm -hmm. When I lived there, how things worked well was that everyone contributed and that created a community that was healthy. Had opportunity, had heart and love, and all the things that, you know, to me, community means. That to me was a new experience. You know, in reflection, America and Americans at times are very individualistic and proud of it. Sure. And there's beauty in that too, but I just had never seen an experience the other side. So that understanding of what community means and the power of it was really profound. I came back and I worked in finance. Um, How I got into finance was not a straight line. It wasn't, I want to work in finance, but it was more so a curiosity about numbers. I've always liked solving problems in numbers and found myself in a role at Morgan Stanley on the investment banking team working out of London. It was an interesting time um, at the turn of the century when I was there because the energy sector across Europe was deregulating, which Mm -hmm. meant it was a time of a lot of mergers and acquisitions of energy companies. And I was um, a junior person on the team doing a lot of number crunching and spent a very long month or two perfecting this financial model to present to a leadership team at a company to consider the acquisition of another energy company. And it looked like a home run. All the numbers made sense, profitable, cost cutting, all upside. And in the presentation, it was rejected because of the culture between the two companies not fitting. And to me, that was just, my mind went, what? (laughs) Yeah, I had not factored in the idea of people and culture in that analysis and that stuff. I left banking for different reasons and found myself after a few years working in New York City at the Public Theater, which if people don't know it, it's a remarkable institution found by Joseph Papp uh, many years ago now as really with the idea that art should be accessible for all. It should not be something that you need money to access. And so it has a really de- democratized feel when you work there. And at the moment in time I walked in, it was a remarkable moment because George Wolfe was the artistic director and plays like Tony Kirshner's Angels in America was on. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who You know, was a brilliant actor. He had a theater presenting there. We lost him, but he was a light. And all this art was just so dynamic. However, the organization was financially in peril. And I was volunteering in the fundraising department when someone found my resume and said, hey, you know finance, can you find us a loan?
0: Hmm. I thought,
1: of course I can. That I can do. Long story short, um, after calling many financial institutions to hear the word no, no, there's no collateral. No, the finances aren't strong enough. No, I, I was just lost. I was stunned. I'm sitting in this amazing institution whose financial destiny was bankruptcy in a matter of weeks mm-hmm. and not being able to find the resources to help them live another day. And I just couldn't I couldn't put that equation together. How, how can our society not support this art organization? How can that not be important? and i just couldn't put the pieces together and in that journey i called a community development financial institution um, mm-hmm. an acronym that now is starting to become more popular at this moment in time a cdfi mm-hmm. and what cdfis do is they work in community they provide loans they are provide equity um, they are credit you know banks in community. and they're a network of over a thousand of them of these institutions that are certified by the u s. Treasury. And they are the pipes down into communities. They create financial access. They provide loans. They provide banking services to communities that are often overlooked by traditional banks, mm-hmm. by the large commercial banks like, you know, a Bank of America or a city bank that might just not understand and see the uh, profitability of working with smaller startups or social enterprises, businesses led by, by people of color or women um, that may not feel comfortable walking in a bank, all that type of population that just gets overlooked. And so I called one nonprofit finance fund at that time and I found a home. Mm. Um, this was before the word impact investing had become popularized as today. Um, What they did is they worked in community providing loans for arts organizations and educational institutions in communities that were rapidly changing, gentrifying at that time, trying to hold on to those anchor institutions so that the communities, the vibrancy of those communities would also stay as the community was rapidly changing. And so with that, I came to Washington DC and I worked in Columbia Heights which was a neighborhood at that time that was changing rapidly, and provided loans to the Dance Institute of Washington, a black ballet that was an anchor institution, a uh, Hispanic theater, which was another anchor institution, um, helped a charter school that provided early education to three and four-year-olds, buy a building, and anchor the community in ways over five years that really taught me about how to work through providing access to capital, how to listen, how to understand the needs of community through the lens of access to capital and opportunity, and then the target in the Best Buy movement. And I thought, well, maybe my work here is done. (laughs) Now, 11 years later, I've been at Calvert Impact Capital, where, you know, I found the next bridge to the work that I do now. Um, The work we do at Calvert Impact Capital is global. And that, attracted me. You know, the access to capital, the ability to get money into community is a global issue. Mm -hmm. And what Calvert Impact Capital does is it raises money from everyday individuals. So as low as $20, a person can buy a note. We have investors that are as large as 20 million. We take all that money and we invest it in intermediaries and funds, which are for us community development financial institutions we lend to, affordable housing developers in the US funds that provide access to capital around renewable energy microfinance institutions internationally those funds that we invest in then invest in businesses and buildings and schools and individuals and they're generally located in community they're deeply embedded in the sector or the geography they work in so they really understand the needs of community and how to move that capital into community in a way that can really provide deep impact and so we've been doing this for over 30 years, nearly now. And over that time, we've raised $3 billion from everyday people. Right now we have about 5,500 investors and collectively about half a billion invested around the globe.
0: Wow, so a lot to unpack there. I, I think yeah. the, <laughs> the, the, the one thing you said, the access to capital, I think, is, is sort of the, the most important sort of phrase in all this and because i think you kind of saw a little bit early on when you're at the institution you just couldn't you you i think i think it sounded like you thought maybe it'd be one or two phone calls and you would this would be done right (laughs) and absolutely and and that was so and that was a a while ago right and i still think that that probably happens today because people sometimes or organizations or, or small you know social enterprises the the first step to access the capital is like knowing where to go to access capital like correctly for them right i mean their best sort of you know idea might not be going to their local bank of america right or or city bank or, or one of these big institutions um but it might be to one of these institutions you're you're talking about and you said they have a thousand of them across america is that correct or or thousands or something like that that's right so most so probably most people would have the ability to walk in or, or now sort of call one of those institutions and at least understand their pathway to accessing capital for their needs. It, w- would you say that, that that's, a, that's a correct statement?
1: Yeah, indeed. And there's an organization called Opportunity Finance Network. They're the umbrella organization, a membership organization for all these CDFIs and a mm. great resource to go to, to find a CDFI in your neighborhood. They have something called a CDFI locator. And so you can type in your zip code and find the CDFI in your backyard. And indeed, what CDFIs are able to do is provide education, conversation, technical assistance, help you build your business model if you need to do that. Really think about what type of capital you need and what you can afford so you're not getting over indebted with Mm -hmm. capital just to grow your business in a moment in time. So they're there to really help And that process can take one week or one year. What I've found is CDFIs are really patient. Their goal is to really grow and nurture businesses, institutions, in community. And they're part of community. They're not going anywhere. So they're also someone you can go back to and get another loan or get more advice year after year after year, and really build a relationship with. And so they're a valuable, invaluable asset in our communities um, that to me, I'm still so surprised um, that many people don't know
0: mm-hmm.
1: about. They just are kind of a hidden you know, ecosystem of uh, really powerful tentacles into community that really provide like in the internet access, the last mile people talked about, this is the last mile to accessing capital for many rural communities in particular. For parts of our nation where um, it doesn't make economic sense, perhaps, for a bank, a for profit institution to put up a storefront. Mm -hmm. They'll use online and technology CDFIs to reach that last mile and really provide that access to
0: capital. Especially now, it's obviously a bit more difficult for these storefronts to, you know, there might, in some of these areas, there might not even be open, right? Right now, I guess they're slowly opening back up. But I guess during, the worst of the pandemic, we'll probably say the last, you know, two months. And I'm sure, I mean, obviously, there's still going to be some challenges. But what did did they, did, did small businesses or, or social enterprises or organizations do the CDFIs work as like a traditional bank, or like they giving out these sort of loans that these traditional banks were doing? Because I think that seemed to be an issue with a lot of these small businesses going to their big banks not getting sort of money because they were first loaning out to their big clients, right? Which makes right. I guess that makes sense for them, right? So right. do they do these CDFIs, do the institutions act as, as banks where they have sort of the access to these government sort of programs where they can disperse within the community?
1: Yep, they do. And one of the central nodes, a good one for people to look to is uh, Community Reinvestment Fund, okay. CRF. They have a platform called Connect to Capital, and there you can go and find again a CDFI. They matchmake. You know, if you don't have a CDFI in your backyard or the CDFI, you can't leave your house to go find one online. They'll matchmake your need with the CDFI and help you find financing. And you know, with the PPP program um, that you re, you know were alluding to with the big banks, you know, community reinvestment fund. Uh, was able to put out and help support about 10 billion of PPP loans across the country. And what's really quite astounding is what a lot of these CDFIs are doing is getting to the smallest of businesses. Mm -hmm. So those that are really FTEs, full-time employees of less than 10, even less than five. You know, in New York last week, we actually were part of a group of CDFIs and community reinvestment fund that launched a hundred million dollar loan fund. It's called New York forward loan fund and it's been capitalized by the larger banks board foundation as well as the city has put money into it and it's been stood up to really be capital for those smallest of small businesses across the state so we opened the application pool it was oversubscribed so way more than 100 million of applications came in but more so almost 88 percent are ftes less than 20 and 63% of the businesses would say that they're diverse in some dimension. And so it's reaching deep into community clearly and really providing capital where perhaps some of the federal programs that wanted to get there just didn't have the plumbing or the pipes to do that. So CDFIs are really powerful and a great resource for small businesses across the country to look at and to think about connecting up with.
0: When you talk to like investors, What's yep. sort of the the pitch is the wrong word, right? But what do what they like about it? And I guess what do they I, I'm sure the like you said, it was $20 to $20 million. Right. So it's there's a plethora of individuals that are sort of dedicating capital to this. But like what I guess success stories from right. both sides, right? From an investor point of view, the returns are it's a, I, I assume it's sort of a long term approach where it's not necessarily, you know, you're trying to get 18 extra turns, right? It's more of allocating money that would otherwise possibly be just lost in sort of the public market, right? And you're just taking a bigger risk, but this is a way to safely invest in your community, right? For lack of a better term. And then for for businesses, like what has some of the, I guess, success stories been, uh, you know, across, let's start with America first and then I think we'll hit internationally
1: sure sure so the product we offer to investors is a fixed income note Mm -hmm. we offer it in one three five ten and fifteen year terms and the rates of return are modest um, from half percent to three and what investors you know we have all stripes of investors but say a financial advisor that's looking at a client portfolio and they're trying to create a balanced asset allocation for their clients, some in equities in the public market, some perhaps even in real estate, some in cash and some in fixed income, they'll look at our note as an option for their clients' assets that they're allocating to fixed income. And so within that, when people purchase our note, it looks a little bit like a corporate bond. They are buying the whole balance sheet of Calvert Impact Capital, not just one business or one credit within our portfolio, but all of them. And so the risk is diversified you're buying both all our investments here in the us plus everything in the international markets and right now we have over 100 investments in our portfolio that cross nine impact sectors and so that diversification creates a lot of risk mitigation for investors also we sell out only the senior part of our balance sheet beneath our note obligation is about 20 percent of subordinate capital and that capital, if we do have losses in our portfolio, absorbs those losses and therefore protects the senior note holder and ensures that their repayment of principal and interest is senior to the equity that's beneath it. So there's a lot of ways that we've stri- you know, kind of tried to make our product low risk. And as a result, what it's become often is the gateway product for yeah. individuals, financial advisors, even institutions, That are really trying to figure out how to do more with their money. And as a result, a lot of the time that we spend with investors is around education education just about impact investing, education around options to invest, and then education of our note. And what we're finding is a lot of people are now waking up to the fact that their money is an asset that they have power over and that they can align with what they wanna see in this world and you know it's tricky because what we're also finding is as investors have woken up to that of course people providing investment options are using a lot more language around impact investing around green investing to really bring those investors into their products and the question starts to become around greenwashing or around impact washing is that product authentically giving investors the impact that they're seeking And so there's a lot of work underway to create standardization around impact and there's a lot of great work underway now creating operating principles for impact measurement and management. Which is really asking people like us who manage people's money to have an impact management and measurement system established in our business so not just words on a paper we invest in communities or we invest in renewable energy, but really a process that we have in place that we follow to measure the impact, to report out the impact to our investors. And that is part of our business. It's not just an add on, but it's integrated in our business. And that's the authentic piece around impact that is now starting to be established within impact in investing and really trying to meet that investor demand for authenticity around investments that are saying that they do impact. And so that's kind of the money in piece. As we kind of put the money out into communities, the money out piece, what we're finding is around the globe, I would say the headline is the same, that there just hasn't been the pipes built into communities to move money efficiently and effectively to where it's needed. Um, it's really a matter of infrastructure, you know, which is like the most dull word <laughs>
0: <laughs> Physically, physical infrastructure, or a technology yeah. infrastructure.
1: Either or, mm-hmm. both are both could be. It could be a bricks and mortar bank. It can be a technology platform that speaks to people in community with their mobile devices, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of that has just not been built out, and so it's hard then to move money responsibly into a community if there's no way for that money to travel. So a lot of what I see impact investing is um, in the work in communities and the work in the private markets that we specialize in is building that last mile of infrastructure. So that money can reach people so opportunity can be accessed equitably for all, and if we can build that infrastructure, then you can scale it, you can grow it. You can, you know, put money through it all the time, but the challenges is, is the upfront cost of building that infrastructure. And that's a little bit, I think the challenge we're in right now with just impact investing, it's building that infrastructure and putting it in place. It takes money, it takes time, um, it takes talent. Once it's in place, then it can really do what it's built to do, but getting it in place is the challenge
0: has there been any headway in doing that cuz i think the the one original one i always go back to is uh M-Pesa, which i believe was was kenya yeah. um and now i th- i think it's all across africa in a lot of ways but they sort of leapfrogged sort of our tradition like just i i guess sort of just other countries in general who they kind of leapfrogged doing the physical brick and mortar Yes. banking style how we done in America and they're just going straight to this sort of mobile phone as being the bank right yep. so it it seems like you could probably build infrastructure easy is a bad word but maybe it, it's worth probably investing in the technology framework and plumbing to get the infrastructure built for access to capital than it would be to try to build this brick and mortar type infrastructure in certain areas of the world. Would that, would that make sense?
1: It does, it's happening. Mm-hmm. The challenge is to ensure it's being done for good and um, to create the right policies. Um, like we've seen here in the US, some online lenders are usury to ensure that they're working for the good of the consumer, not just being usury and how they offer the opportunity to access capital is the important piece that is still evolving. And there's good and there are bad things I could point out. But I think the theme is is that's where we need to do better in all aspects of money and getting access to capital into communities is to ensure it's done in a way that's not usury, that benefits that community, not just the investor who's giving the money.
0: You've been sort of in Investing for a very long time. Yeah worked at worked at big firm, right? Morgan Stanley. I mean, that's obviously one of the biggest in the world. And I guess the question I have is how have you seen, for good or bad, just investing in in general and sort of the, what are you hearing from investors, let's say, you know, 20 years ago to now about what their goals are? Is it, I I think it is, it, it seems to me personally that it might not be no longer trying to make the most money like out of their investments, right? And just investing money blind, not blindly, but like into these sort of high growth startups, right? That we've seen the last maybe 10 to 15 years take over a lot of the market where you had so much capital go into these grand ideas because they were gonna go public and be unicorns and all this stuff. And a lot of money has frankly just been wasted, right? Yeah. Think about the billions and billions of dollars that have been wasted in these startups that, you know, frankly weren't even really, I mean, they failed because they just were either run bad, like business wise, or the product wasn't even very good. But even if the product succeeded, is it that really good for society to have some of this stuff, right? And imagine what that money could have been done going into, you know, funds like yours or, or others out there where the long term approach of, Building out these community infrastructures, not only in America but around the world, how that lifts up everybody from an economic standpoint, and then that in turn may, will make everybody money eventually, right? Those who who invest in long term, but have you seen investor sentiment sort of change over your career about what they want their money to do? I guess is the is the, is the good question. It's, all that, right. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yes. But I have continually have to remind myself because I do get disappointed Mm -hmm. in this pace of this change. It is a marathon, not a sprint. And I got to tell you, I don't get it. Everything you just said makes sense to me. If you invest thinking about the environment, about the people and how they benefit, how your community will ultimately be served. It just makes such logical sense that you would put your money into opportunities like we offer at Calvert Impact Capital, like many of the groups that call themselves impact investing Mm -hmm. firms do. It just makes sense. But the reality is what I have found is the established system of finance is enormously powerful and it's very, very large. And to eat away at it and to give a different option to what already exists is enormous task. And I think we're seeing this in all parts of our society right now, you know, whether it's how we deliver healthcare as a nation here in the U.S., how we deliver education, all those systems are not delivering. They're broken in how they deliver their care and they have ballast to benefit a certain demographic or group. And I would say the financial markets are similar. Um, You look at even, you know, the New York Stock Exchange today and the companies listed on it. And they are a small microcosm of the businesses across our nation. There's just a handful there. And yet they continue to soar and grow and collect capital and other businesses can't find a dime. Mm -hmm. So there's an imbalance in what the system rewards and what the system invests in, because it's what it's always done. And I have found that it's so big, it's hard for it to change. So what I see happening is investors asking for different opportunities, people like us looking for different opportunities to invest are chipping away and giving the system, maybe a soul of thinking about what else matters beside financial return. And you know, one jargon for that is ESG, environmental, social, and governance features of businesses. And each of those are an important pillar of how a business contributes to the world and can be measured and can be reported on. The challenge is, is we're not totally capturing the cost of doing business right now. You know, The fancy word is externalities. And so I'll give you an example. It's very profound in, say, uh, labor. You know, people hire people to do work at a wage that's much below the living wage. So they're subsidizing, you know, their business is growing off of subsidy labor. And as a result, the true cost of creating whatever product they are is much higher then they are calculating and that additional profit that they're making is going back to shareholders not into the workers you know businesses that are truly paying a living wage don't earn as much money so might not look as attractive to an investor but i would argue they're much more sustainable they're here for the long term and if we ever get to a point as a country or as a society where we ask that business that is building their business off a of subsidy to actually pay people what they're worth, it's gonna become very transparent quickly, the value of those businesses and well, the playing field will be leveled. So there's a structural problem there if if I'm communicating well.
0: Oh, you're speaking to exactly the right to the heart of of everything that I've looked at from the the entire reason I, I really started Cause Artists was to really try to spotlight companies and brands that are doing the latter of, of sort of what you're doing, right? Taking the long-term approach, paying ethical wages, understanding that doing that will affect the bottom line. But at the end of the day, it is the sustainable approach for a business to have not only from an economic standpoint, but also just from like a human standpoint an environmental standpoint. Like you just alluded to, it, it, it was it was perfect because we talked a little bit about the companies on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, but you could talk about Nike, you could talk about <laughs> Lululemon now, which we have seen sort of really skyrocket, really any public fashion company. Has made their billions off of subsidized workers. I mean, the entire fashion industry is built off of really unethical labor practices and very, very low wages in very poor countries, because they could get away with doing it. Right. And to me, that is as a as a consumer, it it's it's it really hurts because it's it's really I, I think it's I don't know the right word to, to look here, but but for Nike to, to do a bunch of they, the stuff they do socially, and sort of be um, rewarded for it, I, I think in a lot of ways and be praised for what they do, I, it's tough for me to swallow because companies like that have have built their market cap off of a lot of really really dark practices, and, and maybe they don't look at it that way. And obviously, some consumers I think just don't know. But like you said, I mean, it's a, a lot of these companies in the public market have just built 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 off cheap labor, subsidized labor that I, I think as we're seeing now going forward, a lot of this stuff is going to be transparent, I think, much more. Mm-hmm. Which is I is a good thing. Look, I think if yeah. Nike can pay for Super Bowl ads, they could certainly pay decent wages around the world, right? Or even in America, right? I mean I, it, I mean so I think how money is allocated between marketing budgets and maybe giving sustainable wages to people whether they're in America or globally I think is is hopefully something that becomes more transparent and changes because that like you said I mean once sort of the veil is lifted on a lot of this stuff you're gonna see if you know if if all of a sudden our government here in the United States says hey you have to pay even if you're if you're you know, employing people offshore, you have to pay them a decent living wage, or a, become an offshore American minimum wage type bill, or something that passes. I don't know, right? I'm getting uh, uh, off a soapbox here, but I think, like you said, the, the the value of these these sort of companies not being able to to do that stuff anymore is to take a real hit, right? And I think I, I just think you were you're spot on. So I'm sorry for for rambling there. <laughs>
1: One of the things I was told by a mentor of mine once is that accounting is destiny. So what you measure matters. And I do think that that could be one of the solutions too, if companies are asked and required to show their environmental footprint on their financial statements or the value of their labor force to some you know, kind of national average. So people could see if they're above or below Boy. Able to start to understand, you know, like you said, the word transparency, what the practices are of the organization um, compared to a peer group or even compared to a universal standard, then we can begin to understand really how these businesses are running their company and make a choice if that's where we want to support with our dollars or not. Um, but I do think we need that to happen, to start to see money move in big ways um, to different outcomes. And I'm hopeful that maybe we're getting there, because it's not sustainable what we have right now.
0: Do you look at other sectors of business that that you see sort of similar things happen where it's just sustainability of certain sectors might not be as fruitful as it, as it looks? <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, one that I think is a riddle in impact investing is the ocean, you know, and it might not be directly answering your question, but I think it's an interesting example of when it's a common good, right? No one owns the ocean. We all are beneficiaries of it, especially the high seas. There's no rule of law. How people's use of the ocean can really impact communities positively or negatively. And, you know, for a long time impact investing has tried to make investments in the ocean that both return impact and a financial return. And guess what they're stumped to do both because if you're extracting value out of the ocean to pay back an investor then you're probably not leaving as much fish or other resources in the ocean that need to be there someone's not everyone can't win, so to speak. And so there is some investments in the ocean around blue technology or sustainable aquaculture that are successful, but preserving the ocean, the conservation of the ocean is the riddle. And I think that just shows that, you know, you can't use finance to solve everything. Um, Some things are not investable. They're a common good and they need to be protected. And we all need to contribute to that protection which does go back then to the corporate footprint of businesses and how they treat those common goods and being respectful and mindful and working collaboratively in that way and so i think we got to be thoughtful um about that as well
0: you're you're hitting all my all, all the things that touch deep in my heart right now so the ocean is is another one that is is sort of this like you said it's just this it's this thing that we're all really dependent on, really. If that ecosystem goes, everything else is irrelevant. The trickle effect of having that being destroyed is just unimaginable. And, and that's why I don't understand how why the business sector doesn't see that as if we don't sort of protect or sustain ocean life in the ecosystem, how everything else will eventually crumble. And I think the one of the things that I've been so fortunate with is discovering these these companies like we do, that I do through Cause Artists, how they're taking all the plastic waste out the ocean and yep. turning it into fibers, right? To actually create clothing products, right? Whether it's shoes, whether it's socks, whether it's sweatshirts, right? The one I have on now, whether it's shorts. So I think we're, there are some innovative ways where we can do good not only in restoring our oceans, but also, there's a return on investment if these companies have more access to capital, right? Where they are creating brands and products out of the destruction of the ocean, right? But it's yeah. to me that's a beautiful symmetry of the way we, we sort of sus- save and sustain our oceans by depolluting it, so to speak, and then creating beautiful products from it that allow both consumers and investors to benefit from cleaning up our oceans. To me that's the first step in what we can do to at least start start a, a slow transition of you know revitalizing that that ecosystem.
1: One of the things too complementing that that I've seen successful recently is as we're cleaning up the ocean not continuing to pollute it and in the not continuing to pollute it, some European companies have begun to compensate their senior leaders on environmental, reaching environmental milestones that they set out for themselves, but not over a quarter or a year, but over three, five years. So the compensation, is not realized for three to five years. So you have to sustain the environmental practices and show the progress to the milestones over a longer period of time. And a few companies now wait compensation. So more than 50% is on this long-term horizon tied to these other goals, not just net income, right? Environmental outcomes. And um, guess what? These companies are doing the right thing
0: that's amazing. amazing. So give, yeah. can you give me an example of what you meant by by that? Like is there so you're, so you're saying that people in government
1: in companies, companies so large companies. companies that are not practicing good environmental footprints, like how they, you know, recycle their water or how they dispose of chemicals. They have to generally invest to do that responsibly. And it's a lot cheaper just to keep dumping it. Mm -hmm. And so that investment costs money. And you generally don't see the return on that investment until it's three, five, seven years down the road. You don't see it within six months or a year. If that's the case, then the leadership of these companies aren't very incentivized to invest in the responsible environmental practice for their company Mm -hmm. if their compensation is given to them on the performance of one year's work.
0: I see. And so when
1: you start to take their compensation and take a majority of it, like half of it, and say, you get this bonus if you show outcomes in three to five years from now that look like this, then That's they start to line up, right? The yep. investments that that company makes and the outcomes that they see down the road are timed right. To really make choices in the present moment that not only benefit the globe, but you know benefit their own pocketbook, which is natural human instinct to want to make money. So, fine. But let's align those decisions so you get to the right outcomes. So there are companies doing that. You're saying? Just starting. I've seen a few in Europe doing that, and it comes from a board that puts that in place, right, and says Mm. we want to do things different um but what it does again is it puts companies you know the challenge is a company reports with its peer group on an annual basis its net income and if it falls behind because it's making investments or doing things different that will benefit them over the long term but over the short term you know creates more expense that's the rub right that the board and the management have to be really strong in communicating the choices they're making today and why that's important and then you get back to me to your original question around investors if investors understand that and want it then the whole thing works because people will seek out those types of responsible businesses they'll put their money there they're not just seeking a quick return they want their money in a company that yes is going to do right and be here for the long run and provide economic return to them over time not just over a three-quarter a year you know horizon and the whole system starts to link together so it's very you know much connected and i think we're making progress on all of it but back to one of my earlier comments the urgency to change quickly is not there i hope it's growing because of just the world and its pressures that we're seeing, whether it's the environment, whether it's the social unrest, whether it's the health and the pandemic. But I'm hoping that these factors are enough to start to change things at a pace that's been quicker than we've seen.
0: I think that's a brilliant idea, sort of a compensation bonus structure based on sustainability goals or impact goals or ESG goals. I mean, whatever you sort of within a company want to call it, that would be, I think, a really, really amazing first step or even, I, I always do this because I, I feel like it it raises the eyebrows of businesses a little more, is if governments could tax incentivize that, right? Like you reach some sort of tax incentive based on sustainability goals or based on some type of ESG goals that, you know, a government or even, it doesn't even have to be federal; it could just be a state level thing, right, or even a city level thing that imposes some type of tax incentive for companies and business to take it seriously. They, yep. there's they, you know, that to me that would start a conversation where that would that would allow businesses to have a real incentive, pretty much like you said, immediately on an annual basis, right? So there's some of that short-term return that they see from it and then obviously what we were talking about earlier the longer term approach could be from a business point of view where the bonus structure comes into place based on some of these some of these okay. goals that are put in place
1: right and you would think the government would be aligned with that because if the gov- if the corporates are doing their part in protecting the environment in theory there would be less money the government would need to spend
0: 100 so, percent.
1: right everyone yeah. should win
0: yeah yeah well thank you so much for for taking the time Jennifer. It was uh it was amazing. I love these conversations from from people who have been in it for for so long and have so much knowledge to to give me and then also like the audience it, it really just uh I think allows a a great conversation for topics that are not necessarily talked about in long form like this a lot, but I think uh really it, it really gives insight into a lot of different opportunities for for investors, but then also small businesses and social enterprise for the outlets that are available to them that aren't, they're a bit non-traditional, um, but I mean, are are such value aligned to, to everything that I think we all wanna do, right? I think it's just having these products and structures in place and infrastructure in place where investors can invest in their values and there's companies there that they are able to do that with because these companies hold their values. So I think it's a beautiful dance that we're in the beginning stages of, and I think it's gonna be, I'm optimistic that it's gonna be a, a good long journey ahead of us.
1: Thank you, Grant, for inviting me on today.